0: Welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of presidential campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson. (music) Dwight Eisenhower wasn't just the hero of D-Day. He pulled off an invasion of the 1952 Republican Convention and came away the party's nominee. We'll explain how he did it in a minute. But first, a word from our sponsor. If you're listening to this podcast, you love history, you've heard me say it before, and I want to let you know about a favorite set of history lessons being offered by The Great Courses. It's called Turning Points in American History. They're 30-minute or so dives into some great little moment in history that explains the larger currents of our great national tapestry. The one I was listening to yesterday was about the birth of television, which plays a role in our story today. The Great Courses has created a special limited offer for Whistle Stop listeners. Order Turning Points in History at 80% off the original price. That's Turning Points in American History at thegreatcourses.com slash whistle-stop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistle-stop. Our whistle stop today is July 8th, 1952, and we are under the arched ceiling of the Gold Room of the Congress Hotel in Chicago. The room gets its name from the gold leaf that seems to spread over every cornice and column and crown molding all the way up 50 feet on the ceiling. It looks like the Sistine Chapel. The room is filled with about, well, it fits about 800 people. There are about 1,000 here. It's the Republican Credential Meeting for the Republican convention. Almost everybody in the room is a man in a boxy suit with a hat, and they are here to fight for the nomination of the Republican party. The actual convention hasn't even started, but 93 delegates are in dispute between the two candidates running for president for the nomination for the Republican ticket. The first is Senator Robert Taft of Ohio. The second is Dwight David Eisenhower. The states in contention here are all from the South, Mississippi, Georgia, Texas, Virginia, Florida, And the reason it's so contentious is the two men come into the convention essentially tied in the delegate estimates that the Associated Press and other newspapers have been tallying. So depending on how the credential committee votes, it's likely to determine who the nominee is. And no credential committee vote has ever been overturned by the larger convention, which is yet to meet. The Eisenhower men are saying they've been steamrolled by Taft. That's a word you hear all day long, steamrolled. They say Taft's delegates are frauds, the product of theft and backroom chicanery and deceit. The message is summed up in a huge sign that's up in the Eisenhower headquarters, which says, thou shalt not steal. The Taft forces, of course, say the Eisenhower delegates are frauds. And there are two sets of delegates. It's like Noah's Ark, two from Mississippi, two from Texas, two from Georgia. The Taft people say that Eisenhower's delegates are all Democrats who were brought into the system. As one of the Taft people from Mississippi making his case says, I don't know where these people came from. They just came from out of the ground. The gavel sounds to start the credential committee meeting at 817 in the morning Pacific Standard Time. But there was so much commotion and pushing and shoving and yelling, the actual business had to be delayed. Somebody suggested that a sergeant at arms should be appointed to settle down the fighting because there's been actual fisticuffs between representatives of the Taft team. And the Eisenhower team, there's a report that Eisenhower men pushed taftites down a stairwell. There was a fight that was so bad over where to place posters in the convention hall that the GOP chairman had to make a ruling. He also had to make another crucial ruling, and that was whether television cameras should be allowed into this proceeding in the Gold Room. There were about 18 million Americans who now have television sets for the first time. And the Eisenhower men want televisions in this room to show the proceeding of the credential committee because they say a theft has been committed and they want all of America to see. The Taft people don't want the television cameras. They are overruled. And so the Eisenhower underdogs proclaim this, quote, another victory on behalf of the American people by the Eisenhower forces. So now let's step back. Why are things so bitter and contentious? Here's the way. The New York Times, Scotty Reston, put it, a famous columnist. Quote, there is more than a personal battle that is going on here. The conservative wing of the party is fighting for its life. The Republican Party entered the 1951, the year of 1951, having lost... All the presidential ballots since 1932. And there was a war inside the party over whether the Republican Party would even continue to exist. And that fight was between Robert Taft of Ohio, who we've mentioned before. He represented the old guard, as it was called, the conservatives. And then on the other side was New York Governor Thomas Dewey, who represented the more moderate wing of the party. He had lost the last two elections in 1944 and 48 as the party's nominee. As Claire Booth Luce said, you can't make a souffle rise twice But he didn't shrink away the way, say, somebody like Mitt Romney has in the current period. Dewey decided to try and work behind the scenes to promote Eisenhower. So while this was a Taft-Eisenhower fight that had us in the Gold Room fighting over 93 delegates, it was really a Taft-Dewey fight. The old guard conservatives, they wanted to beat back the New Deal, dismantle Social Security, and fight communism in Asia. The Dewey side, the moderate side, thought after losing so many elections, the Republicans should try to be a little bit more accommodationist, recognize that the New Deal was here to stay, build a new coalition, and protect the bipartisan cooperation that had reigned over foreign policy between the two parties. That might all sound very familiar. You may remember after this last election in 2012, Republicans, the National Committee had a quote-unquote autopsy, and the autopsy basically argued something similar to what the moderates in 1952 were arguing. The moderates also didn't like the way the conservatives behaved. Senator Margaret Chase Smith from Maine, who was a member of the moderates, said she didn't want her party to ride to victory on, quote, the four horsemen of calumny, fear, ignorance, bigotry, and smear. The conservatives had their own views about how horrible the moderates were and a pamphlet being passed around at the credential committee meeting said, quote, Tom Dewey is the most cold-blooded, ruthless, selfish political boss in the United States today. He stops at nothing to enforce his will. His promises are worthless. He's the greatest menace that the Republican Party has. Twice he has led us down the road to defeat, and now he is trying the same trick again, hidden behind the front of another man. That front man, of course, was Eisenhower, and while the credential committee was meeting, an Eisenhower truck was blaring, thou shalt not steal in the streets outside. Then there was another competing truck with a PA system that was blaring, two-time loser, do we want to be a president by proxy, Fooey on Dewey. There was one real substantive debate that we should mention before getting back to the politics between Eisenhower and Taft, and that was over the United States role in Europe and NATO. It was known as the great debate. It was fought out in the Senate and Taft had been the senator trying to oppose a big U.S. role in Europe. Eisenhower was Truman's appointee to NATO, so he'd obviously supported it. Taft, for this and other reasons, because he wanted a more limited U.S. role overseas, was called an isolationist. And this was a charge that the senator had to answer on Meet the Press. Here he is doing so. Now, this isolationist thing has come to be just a name calling proposition. Uh, something that's thrown against people who happen to disagree with the administration's foreign policy in any respect. But it means nothing today. So you hear Taft there sounding much like Rand Paul does today, trying to defend himself against the isolationist label. There was such a brutal delegate fight in 1952 for other reasons. And that was partially because Eisenhower was such a reluctant candidate. And his team had put in place an extraordinary tactical gambit to get around the backroom dealings that Taft had set up and the party machinery of the Republican Party. So remember in 18, in our episode where we talked about the election of 1840 and the tradition in America where for the first hundred years or so, candidates stood for election and didn't campaign for it. That's basically the way Eisenhower was behaving. His first posture in 1948 was to give one of the great quotes about running for president. He said, quote, I don't believe a man should even try to pass his historical peak. I think I pretty well hit my peak in history when I set the German surrender in 1945. Now, why would I want to get into a completely foreign field and try to top that? Why should I go out and deliberately risk that historical peak by trying to push a bit higher? But then in 1950, a series of Republican senators, Hugh Scott of Pennsylvania, Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts, And Governor Dewey of New York started to work on Eisenhower, all of them in separate efforts. They argued to him that the Republican Party was in danger of collapsing and leaving the country with just one party, which would have been the Democratic Party, although conservatives started to call it the Democrat Party at about this time, and that that would lead to socialism. Hugh Scott had gotten Dewey nominated in 1948. This Hugh Scott is a Pennsylvania senator. He'd been chairman of the party and then had been kicked out by the Taft forces. So this is the simmering fight between moderates and conservatives. And Scott met with Eisenhower in 1950 to try to see if he was open to the idea of a campaign for him. And Eisenhower told Scott, according to Scott's book about the Republican Party, Eisenhower said, quote, I don't know about the future, but I will say this. I would not be interested in the sort of thing like a fight at the convention where X gets 385 votes and Y gets 455 votes, something like that. Of course, that's what would later happen in 1952, but we're in 1950. As we get to 1952, a draft Eisenhower movement starts to spread across America, but Eisenhower was still not participating. Here he is being asked about a candidacy over in Europe, where he's working for NATO. General, your name has been brought up several times in regarding a possible political office. Would you care to comment on that, sir? Ever since I have first heard my name connected with possible political office, I have consistently declined to consider such a contingency. This posture by Eisenhower was maddening to the men working on his behalf because Taft Party men were locking up The organization, the party, and without a green light from Eisenhower, it was hard to get party people to commit to him. And back then, it was all about who controlled the party structure. Taft was known as Mr. Republican in the Senate. So Republicans should be for him. Party people weren't even sure if Eisenhower was a Republican at all. And Eisenhower refused to say if he was a Republican when Hugh Scott flew over to Paris to lobby Eisenhower to say something about his connections to the Republican Party so that Scott could go back to the states and work Republicans saying, hey, we've got this great candidate. Eisenhower said, well, just look at my speeches and you'll get an idea of what I believe. And Scott wrote, the unwillingness of the general to give his supporters an unmistakable green light was, of course, maddening. His reservations were honorable but crippling to a struggle to sway public opinion and to win delegates. By the beginning of 1952, though, The men working on Eisenhower's behalf were able to at least show something. Senator Henry Cabot Lodge told reporters that he'd got an official word that Eisenhower would accept a draft movement. And that allowed the Eisenhower men to move forward with putting his name on the ballot in various primary states. So the Eisenhower forces were on a two-track approach here. One was to try and get his name on the ballot in various states. The other was to keep trying to convince Eisenhower to run. So in February of 1952, they arranged a late night rally after a prize fight at Madison Square Garden. 15,000 people attended. And Clark Gable was there, Ethel Merman you'll be swell, uh, was there, and the legendary songwriter Irving Berlin, who sang a new composition called I Like Ike. The whole thing was put on film, and the film of the Jamboree was flown to Paris to show Eisenhower that there was this groundswell for him. The big change in things happened with the New Hampshire primary. It was the first big test. Eisenhower was on the ballot. Taft was not strong in New Hampshire, but he entered anyway on the last possible day. And he did have the support of the Manchester Union leader. Remember, we've talked about that before. But in the end, Eisenhower wallops him, gets 50 percent of the vote. Taft gets just 38 percent of the vote. But Eisenhower is still dragging his feet. He reports from Europe and says, quote, any American who would have that many Americans pay him that compliment would be proud or he would not be an American. That was his response, enigmatic and strange. Then came the Minnesota primary, and this really put it over the edge because to vote for Eisenhower, you had to write in his name. And here's how Life magazine reported what happened. The one name penciled in again and again on the long scroll was sometimes spelled Eisenhower, H-A-U-R, or Eisenhower, H-O-W-E-R, or Ike, but however spelled, Eisenhower's name was scrawled 107,000 times on the ballots and voting machines in Minnesota's primary last week, a modern political miracle without precedent or parallel. It became known as the Minnesota Miracle, and because Eisenhower had been written in by that many people, it was a clear sign of the groundswell for him. And Eisenhower told reporters that he was, quote, astonished at the mounting number of my fellow citizens who were voting for me. He said it was, quote, forcing me to reexamine my present position and past decision. So now he's in. And he resigns his post, comes back and speaks on June 4th, 1952, and enters the race. And for those of you keeping score, we began this drama in the Golden Room in Chicago in July of 1952. So Eisenhower enters the race on June 4th, basically a month before the convention. In his announcement speech, though, he's still playing it vague. B. Carol Reese, who is supporting Taft, said after listening to Eisenhower's announcement speech, it, quote, Looks like he's pretty much for home, mother, and heaven. Eisenhower was popular, but there was a lot of doubt that the Taft folks could still raise about him. I mean Eisenhower's position was essentially and his supporters essentially believed that independents and disaffected Democrats would be drawn to his popularity and his softer edges. And the conservatives rejected this idea. They basically said, that's what we've done the last two times. And if we run a true conservative, then independents will flock to that person because what they've been really waiting for is a real choice, is a real clear conservative choice. And this is essentially the argument that Ted Cruz makes today, that if you run a real principled man, that people will flock to them. This is essentially a version of the idea of a silent majority. What conservatives said about Eisenhower was that he was the quote-unquote Me Too candidate, meaning not that different from the Democrats. And so there were taft buttons at the Republican convention that said, no Me Too in 1952. And the Chicago Tribune, the conservative paper, wrote, if the elephant remembers, he should be all through with Me Too. The Taft argument was also that basically Eisenhower was an empty vessel. One Taft aide said, hero worship is no substitute for faith based on known performance. Neither is glamour or sex appeal. In 1948, to show you how things shifted on Eisenhower, Walter Lippmann, the famous columnist, characterized him this way. He is not a real figure in our public life, but a kind of dream boy, embodying all the unsatisfied wishes of all the people who are discontented with things as they are. That was in 1948. But in 52, even Lippmann was feeling the love of Eisenhower, saying that he could reunite the American people to heal their divisions and that no other candidate offers us, for the first time in our generation, the prospect of a unified nation. So the unifier, Eisenhower, has popular support, but he doesn't have the wiring of the machine. And this is where we get to the Texas Convention and the so-called Texas Steel. The only way the Eisenhower folks can get around what Taft has wired with the convention is to go down south because the organizations in the south and the Republican Party were basically personal preserves of party functionaries. So there wasn't a real party. It was just like a patronage dealership for when a Republican eventually would get into the White House. And so what Hugh Scott and other reform minded Republicans wanted to do is actually build a vibrant party that people could join. In other words, not something that was just feathering the nests of a few, and that that would create a real alternative to the Democrats. So what they did in Texas was basically get a bunch of independents and Democrats and have them go to the precinct caucuses and county conventions. When the Taft forces saw this happening, they insisted – remember, the Taft forces controlled the actual machinery of the party. They insisted that anybody who voted in a caucus or precinct sign a loyalty oath. And the Democrats were told by Eisenhower's men – Go ahead and sign it because it'll never hold up in court. The Taft forces charged that these were just Republicans for a day, and they picked up their marbles and went home. In other words, ignored the voting by these Eisenhower voters and created their own slate of delegates. So here you have the people who voted creating a number of delegates, and then you had the kind of rump group created by the party insiders. Eisenhower claimed, quote, rustlers stole the Texas birthright instead of Texas steers. So this was all going to be adjudicated at a place called Mineral Wells, where 12,000 Republicans showed up on May 28th. The town of Mineral Wells only had a population at the time of 7,700, and this was for the state convention. But remember, Taft controlled the state committee. So of the 519 contested delegates, the committee seated only 30 of them for Ike and then gave the rest to Taft. And then later in the day, the pro-Taft credential committee gave Taft 21 more delegates. At this point, it's the Ike team's turn to pick up their marbles and go home. And so they create a rump convention across the street in the community center, and they pick their own slate of delegates, and they raise placards reading Rob with Bob and Graft with Taft. This is the drama that gets taken to the convention in Chicago, the question of the Texas steal, the theft of delegates in Texas and other southern states, the Eisenhower forces Went to Chicago asking officials to, quote, wipe out the infamy of mineral wells so that we can go before the American people with clean hands. So we leave our story there, Taft heading into the convention as the almost lock for the nomination and Eisenhower and his forces coming up with some way, trying to find some way to appeal outside of the party organization to find some argument for why Eisenhower should get these delegates and should be the party's nominee. We'll have the second episode of the 1952 Republican Convention next week on the next edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at podcasts at slate.com or even better, leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Head over to iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. Thanks to our sponsor this week, The Great Courses. Remember... The Turning Points in American History, The Birth of American Television, The Birth of Baseball, Shays' Rebellion, and all those other great stories, 80% off at thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. Our producer of WhistleStop is Mike Bolo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network, which you all can spell by now. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who has always supported a strong U.S. presence in Europe. I'll be back next week with the second installment of the 1952 Republican Convention here on Whistle Stop. I'm John Dickerson.